somebody said to me when I came in, well, I'm glad the Lord wasn't done with you yet. And I said, well, if he was, he had a very excellent opportunity to prove it. Um, I know some of you uh, probably are unaware of these last couple of days for me in my life. Um, so I just want to very briefly uh, do two things. Number one, say thank you to every one of you or many of you who have have heard about my little uh, accident and also have prayed for me. I'm here, and uh, just want to thank the Lord for that. But thank the Lord, thank, thank the Lord um, for each one of you and the many, many, many uh, calls of prayer or many, many expressions of prayer that you've given to me. A uh, very minor situation. I just have injured knees. I don't know what the injury is. They're just swollen. They're sore. Very painful. But uh, I think they just got beat up, banged around. I don't think I have torn ligaments. Um, it's really hard to tell when they're swelling. You know, even if I went to the hospital, they would say, even if they determined that I had a ligament torn, they would still not be able to do much until the swelling goes down. I mean, I know I've been through this before, so I know what they tell you. They'll just say, well, we'll wait, uh, wait a few weeks and see what we can do when the swelling goes down. So um, that's how, that's kind of how I'm just doing, waiting and praying and doing what I can, um, which is better than it was two days ago. So I feel like the Lord's going to give me the use of my knees back again. I'm just thankful. Uh, my situation was that I was on my motorcycle. I was uh, giving communions uh, for our shut-in pe- folks, and um, it was just an unfortunate accident. I was sitting in uh, sitting in my lane at an intersection, waiting to make a turn out onto another road at an intersection. And as I was sitting there, there was a car came around the corner to turn onto my road, and rather than swinging out past me, this driver just kind of turned the corner way too quick and just plowed headfirst into me. And because I was sitting still, there was nothing I could do to avoid it. Uh, I mean, by the, by the time I saw it, I, I tried to yell, but, I mean, it all happened so fast, and so then on the impact, I was knocked off, but immediately, because of the speed of the car and just continuing to go on around me, I was trapped between the car and the motorcycle. So I'm laying here, and the motorcycle's falling on me on one side, and the car's pulling me along on the other side, and it was very interesting. Um, you can have about three or four different perspectives going on at the same time. And uh, when I would look at her, as I looked at her wheels coming closer and closer, and I couldn't roll, I couldn't move, I couldn't get out of her way, I realized that uh, if the Lord was done with me, he had a good opportunity to prove that point. But he did not, and uh, first I did think maybe, maybe my legs were run over because I had this intense pain in my knees, but... There were no track marks on my pants, so I know that she did not run over me, and uh, it was just somehow in the collision. Um, but she was very apologetic, this lady, and uh, and I was able to pray with her and talk with her and, and, and just help calm her down because she was quite frantic when she realized what had happened. She kept saying, I didn't see you, I didn't see you, and, um, and I, I know that that's true, but... Uh, these things happen. They're called accidents, and um, 
I'm thankful that apparently the Lord was not finished with me and just allowed me to remain a while longer. But I'm thankful in the same way for you, the accidents that you go through, and many of you have, uh, not only car accidents or those kind of things, but, um, you know, many other accidents and events where one little bit of something going different, six inches a, a, a different way, and might have been a very different outcome, but the Lord had his hand on you, he had his angels guarding you, he had a purpose for you, and we just rejoiced together. Someday we'll all get the chance to go to heaven, but we're in no hurry, right? We, wanna, um, we want to uh, be here and enjoy and, and contribute to this life as much as we can, as long as we can. I did, I did hear a motorcycle joke. I throw this in real quickly. This guy, this guy it, uh, this comes up on a motorcycle, comes buzzing up alongside a car, and he taps on the door. He reaches over and taps on the door, and the driver rolls his window down, and the motorcyclist says, Have you ever ridden a Honda? And the guy says, No. And zoom, the motorcyclist just buzzed right on off. And... Up ahead, after a while, he went around another guy, and he came up and hovered near a little beside of him, and he knocked on the door, and the guy rolled his window down. He said, have you ever ridden a Honda motorcycle? The guy said, no. <clears throat> he buzzed on up the road, and after a little while here, he came to a sharp curve, and he was going too fast, and he couldn't make it, and he went out through the ditch and crashed, and another, another fellow came along and saw this poor guy sitting out there. He just dazed, you know, he's kind of looking around, and he gets... He gets out to help this guy, and he says to him, uh, as he gets down in the ditch with this poor guy, the guy says, have you ever driven a Honda motorcycle? And he said, yes, I have. I've ridden one for 20 years. And he said, oh, good. Can you tell me, where are the brakes? <laughs> All right. Here's a question that somebody gave. Uh, it says, please do a sermon on heaven. And uh, so we're going to talk a bit about heaven. And of course, there's so many different aspects of heaven and of the daily life and routines and responsibilities in heaven. I know very little because the Bible describes very little. And there are so many mysterious ideas and so many mysteries connected with heaven and I assume that's why somebody said can you tell me more can you can you give us some in information and describe something about heaven um, so I divided I, I, I decided to use a passage to talk about a passage in Revelation chapter 21 that does not tell us at all what we're going to do from 9 to 5 in heaven but it does describe momentous changes and amazing ideas that blow our mind. And so um, I'm going to talk for a little, what, a little bit, 10 minutes or so, or so. Josh Lance is going to talk about 10 minutes or so. And K.D. Reif is going to share with us also about 10 minutes or so from different aspects of this passage in Revelation 21 that does not describe the beauty or the splendor of heaven, 
so much as it describes an aspect of heaven that we would probably never have guessed if we weren't told about it in the scripture. I'm going to read just a couple verses there. I'm going to do a verse or two. Josh is going to do a verse or two. And then KD. Then I saw, John says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a, as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now is the dwelling of God with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So I'm going to try to answer a question a little bit. Is why is there a new heaven? And I asked Josh if he would talk about what does it be like when God dwells with men. And Katie's going to kind of describe what would it be like if we had no sin and no sorrow and no sadness. If we can imagine, I don't think we fully can, but KD will help us and spur our imagination. Um, so let me tackle that first part. Perhaps some folks are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. There we go. You ever ran into anybody like that? I'm sure you have, or maybe you have been accused of being that way yourself. I don't know. We should be useful and helpful and productive. It's not God's fault if we're so heavenly minded and we're no earthly good because God tells us to be earthly good. He tells us to be useful and helpful and productive. We should be a blessing to people, a blessing to our family and community. We should do a lot of earthly good and at the same time, we should be heavenly minded. God tells us this. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. Colossians 3.1, Set your heart on things above. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. We can do earthly good and be heavenly minded. From the moment that Christ becomes our Savior and Lord, we step onto a train that will disembark into a different world. A world of glory, which the Bible labels as heaven. So we had better get heavenly minded. The truth is this, that Christians who do not have heaven on their mind trivialize their lives. And they become absorbed with the fading relics of this world. Heaven is our destiny. It is the fixation of our hope, the motivation of our suffering, the fulfillment of our righteousness, the end of our journey. Hebrews 11 speaks of our identity as strangers and exiles on this earth who desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So we take a moment today to consider this short passage in Revelation 21 about heaven. Just to reiterate, verse 1. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and earth had passed away. This statement, this surprise, so close to the end of John's visions of the world to come, comes as quite a shock, at least to me when I read it. A new heaven? What happened to the old one? Why will there be a new heaven? 
hang on, because this gets a bit complicated. But then why does it have to be simple? God, heaven is God's dwelling, and he can do with it as he wishes. Actually, I'll correct that and say he will do with it as he wishes. It is his dwelling. A Christian who died 100 years ago or last week went to heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5. We don't understand heaven's current location, but it seems to be in a different dimension than our physical universe. Scripture often refers to heaven as up. Jesus, Mark says, was taken up into heaven. The Lord, David says in Psalm 14, looks down from heaven. Because the sky is above us and is often called heaven, this gets confusing for us. But beyond the earthly atmosphere, heaven number one, and beyond interstellar space, heaven number two, there is what Paul describes, 2 Corinthians 12, as a third heaven. This is the dwelling place of God. And to this place, every Christian travels when their spirit leaves their body at death. This is what Tim read to us when the Lord said, death go down and get Caroline down there in Georgia. <clears throat> Hebrews 12 describes this heaven as a place where the heavenly Jerusalem is located, where thousands upon thousands of angels hold joyful assembly, inhabited by the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and God, the judge of all men. It's not a place of bodies, but of spirits, outside the realm of our physical universe. Hebrews 12 goes on to say that someday the Lord will shake the earth and the heavens, that is, I'm in Hebrews 12, he will shake the earth and the heavens, that is, the created things. <clears throat> and only those things which cannot be shaken will remain. The created things refers to everything in this material universe, our planet, our galaxies. 2 Peter 3.10 says the heavens, part of the created order, part of this earth and its environments, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. In our passage, Revelation 21, we read that the first heaven and the first earth passed away. This incidentally is not referring to a nuclear holocaust or an ecological disaster. This is God's judgment on sin and on everything that sin touched and affected since the Garden of Eden. Romans 8.21 says that the creation, not simply the earth, but the creation, uh, everything created will be liberated from its bondage to decay. It doesn't just say it's the earth. It says all the creation is in bondage to decay, but God will liberate it. <clears throat> How will God liberate his created order? He's going to blow it up, and he's going to start over. Here's a second verse in 2 Peter 3 that says, the day will, This day will bring about the destruction of heavens by the fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to, here we go again, a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. None of this that I'm describing, the destruction of the earth, 
and the created order around the earth, which we might call the first heaven or the second heaven. None of this touches God's heaven, the third heaven, because it is not part of this created universe. So when God simultaneously creates a new earth and a new heaven or atmosphere surrounding the earth, this will simply be a new place, untainted by sin, for all his saints currently in his third heaven, his heaven, to dwell, to come to dwell. This picture drawn here in Revelation 21 is not new. It is found in the Old Testament also. And why not? God has had this plan since the beginning. Isaiah says, chapter 65, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. Chapter 66 of Isaiah. As the new heavens and new earth that I make will endure before me, says the Lord, so will your name and your descendants endure. So, a new perfect world will be breathed into existence by the God who said, No eye has ever seen and no ears ever heard. No mind has ever conceived what I have prepared for those who love me. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> yes, yes, yes. But what about these folks, these people, these ones who have loved God? What good will a new earth do them if they're secreted away in some untouchable heaven beyond the reach of all this shaking and rearranging? Why do I need a new earth if I'm already in heaven? Streets of gold, water of life, yada, yada. Well, the answer is quite simple. The heaven where spirits dwell is a temporary location. Why? Because the spiritual existence that we enter into upon death, that Tim talked about in his poem, because that existence is temporary. Not that the temporary part matters because time is irrelevant there. But nevertheless... The current location and the condition of departed Christians is temporary. When God creates a new earth for us, God will bring us back to that new earth. Again, the same question, why? Because mankind, you and I, are not meant to be spirits only. We are meant to have bodies God wants us to have bodies. He has designed our bodies to express and serve our spirit. And someday, all these promises about resurrected bodies will no longer be promises. We're going to get the bodies, not the promise. We will live on this new earth forever, body and soul reunited. And there won't be any crutches there, but uh, KD can talk about that. We will live on this new earth forever, body and soul reunited. It gets even better, as Josh and Katie will describe in a moment. But before verse 3 comes verse 2, the holy city coming down. And here's that verse. I saw new heaven, new earth, and then I saw, he says, the city, this holy city coming down out of heaven to the earth. So, what does that mean? Galatians 4.26 speaks of the Jerusalem that is above in contrast to the earthly Jerusalem in Israel. This Jerusalem that is above, Paul says, is free. That's what he says. That Jerusalem is free. No bondage, no decay, no evil. 
It is called the city of God in Revelation 3. It's called the city we look forward to, whose architect and builder is God in Hebrews 11.10. It's called the city that is to come in Hebrews 13.14. This is a real place, a city with foundations. Currently in God's third heaven, our departed brothers and spirits enjoy its beauty. I'm sorry, our departed brothers and sisters enjoy its beauty at this very moment. I believe that my parents or people in, in, in my past who have gone there, they are part of this great city. Its immense size and glory is described in more detail later in chapter 21 of Revelation. It's great street. Great street, it says. One great street made of pure gold that was as clear as glass. Pretty amazing. John saw this exquisite-looking city being transferred out of the current third heaven and coming down to God's newly minted, freshly born earth. The temporary heaven where the saints now dwell will no longer be needed because its contents and its people will be brought to earth. So, this is my main point. This is the point I'm trying to say. The new heaven is really a new location of the current heaven. It will be the dazzling splendor of God's heaven descending, morphing, gradually transitioning onto a spectacular natural earth. No symbolism here. It literally will be heaven on earth. And here all these years I thought that was Virginia. The earth, it is noted in Revelation 22, has trees and crops and rivers, nature, landscape, environment, scenery, beautiful and quiet, subtle, soft. But the city is neither soft nor subtle. It pulsates and glitters and jumps for joy, filled with vibrancy, gleaming with lights and colors. The new Jerusalem and the new earth, so different, supercharged and laid back. City meets country. Guess what? In the union of those two, John says, there was a marriage. This was the exotic bride, he says, stepping up to the altar to stand beside her groom. A happy marriage has nothing to do with how different you are, but everything to do with how united you are. This will happen someday when God shifts heaven to earth and shifts heavenly spirits back into earthly bodies and merges place and people into an eternal and everlasting and non-ending life. God will need a new earth because this old earth couldn't handle what he's going to bring down to join onto it. But wait, there's more. It's not just that our worship and our work will be joining together, people joining a, a new a planet, new bodies. It's not just that heaven and earth will merge. There's something even more astounding than that. And Josh is going to tell us about that. My assignment for this morning is verse 3. If you'd allow me just to read the previous verses again for context. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. When I read these words, my spirit cannot help but soar to the highest heights. What a glorious experience that will be. What a, what a glorious picture it puts in our minds. For this is the culmination of all that God had done and wanted from the beginning of human existence, to dwell with his people and to be their God. And we've seen this all throughout the biblical narrative, that God wants to dwell with his people. It started in the beginning by putting mankind in a garden to dwell with him there. It continues at Mount Sinai with the giving of the law and instructions for the tabernacle in order that God may be with his people. That system found a continuation in the temple in Jerusalem, but ultimately it came to its masterful crescendo in salvation through Jesus Christ the Son and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in believers. We read in the scriptures how we are now the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, a household, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and it goes on and on. The idea and the image that God wants to dwell with his people. Now we read at the completion of all things, every barrier, every veil is cast aside. So there is no longer anything between God and his people. We don't need a temple with a curtain that separates us. God is with his people. As verse 3 says, the dwelling place of God is with man. The next few verses give us, uh, so the question is, what will that be like to have God dwelling with man? And the next few verses uh, give us some insight. There will, there will no longer be a need for a sun or a moon, for God himself is the light. All the sins and sorrows and struggles that we have faced in this life will melt away in the presence of the Almighty. There will no longer be any more tears. It really is, or it will be, quite indescribable. It's hard to fathom. But if I had to take an educated guess, I would have to say that God dwelling among his people means there is really nothing else for us that will matter. When I think about all of the things that distract me during my day, when we are literally in the presence of God, when his dwelling place is with man, all of that goes away. You know, I've always thought that when I get to heaven, I'll have a... <laughs> A whole list of questions to ask God. You know, why did you make donkeys so ugly? Why are, they're, they're so ugly, they're cute, I, I think. Why are giraffes, you know, built the way they are? Why can't I ride one? You know, things like that. <laughs> why did you do things a certain way? You know, why did you, uh, why did you make me wait so long for this or that or the other thing? But, you know, when I read these verses... 
as much as I want answers to those questions, I think when, we, when the dwelling place of God is with man, I don't think any of that's going to matter. Not one bit. We will be so engulfed by the presence of God that we will be able to do nothing else but fall down and worship him. <laughs> my goodness, you know, when I'm in my car or I'm sitting in my office and I'm listening to worship music or listening to a podcast or whatever it happens to be and, and I get this just touch from the Holy Spirit, I can feel God's presence coming upon me. <laughs> I can't do anything but weep. I can't do anything but feel the reality of my sin and this deep desire <laughs> to repent because I know I'm not worthy. And that's just a touch from, the, from God. Imagine what it's going to be like when we're surrounded by his presence, when we're engulfed by his presence. You know, I think, I think this is why the Bible only gives us glimpses. It's kind of like, well, at this point, I need to um, apologize to my son because I'm about to use him as a uh, sermon illustration, and I know that's difficult for pastor's kids, being one myself. <laughs> I try not to do it often, but I'm sorry, buddy, I'm about to do this. But I think the Bible gives us just glimpses of what heaven's going to be like, because we truly, if, if, if the Bible laid it out for us in great detail, I don't think we would be able to comprehend it. Have you ever read something and, and thought, I have no idea what I just read all the time. That's what it would be. If, if the Bible gave us detailed description of heaven, we, wouldn't, we would read it and say, I have no idea what that's saying. I wouldn't be able to fathom it. It's like when Zion was a baby and we would put him in, this, in the pack and play. His whole world was within the four walls of that travel crib. And we would have his toys in there, and, and you know, he, he could understand, and he would play, and it would be great. And then I would come along with, a, like, a baseball or a hockey puck, and, and I would give it to him to play with. And he, and he you know, this is a ball. This is a, something I can chew on, you know, whatever. <laughs> but when I would begin to say, oh, buddy, this is a baseball, and it's, it, we use this in this really great sport, and there's nine players and two teams, and there's these bases, and a first baseman and a second baseman and a shortstop and a third base. There's the outfield, the pitcher, catcher. He couldn't fathom any of that. When I would give him the hockey puck and say, this is a hockey puck, and it's this wonderful sport where they just ram into each other, and there's sticks, and there's a goalie, and he couldn't understand any of it, except that little glimpse that I gave him. This is a ball. This is a flat disc that fits very well inside my mouth. <laughs> but I think that's what it's like for us right now. 
we are in that pack and play. We can only comprehend what are within the four walls of that crib. And the description that the Bible gives us of heaven is like that baseball, that we can understand this is a ball. But anything beyond that, this ball is used for something so much greater than just a ball. But we can't comprehend any of that. And I think that's why the Bible gives us a very limited description of what heaven is going to be like. We certainly can have moments where we get that touch from the Holy Spirit and we can sense the presence of God in us, around us, and we know this is going to be wonderful, indescribably glorious. We as believers in Jesus Christ, we have a hopeful expectation that what God spoke to us in his word, the limited description he gives us in his word, is what we have to look forward to, and so, so, so much more. What a marvelous expectation it is to have God dwell with his people. Okay, so I was given the third section um, of this, and listening to what they've been saying and how they brought their uh, part of the sermon today made me think, this was a promise, a true and faithful promise, and it said in my verses that it is, but he did a promise, a physical promise was in David's, one of the body. Josh's was one of the mind, getting our minds ready. And my section is of the soul, and we'll take a look at it here. And I said, a promise at the end that built faith from the beginning. Oh. So my verses were Revelations 21, 4 and 5. It says, and God shall wipe away all the fears are tears from the eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, no crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he sat upon the throne, um, said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, write for, this, for these words are true and faithful. I highlighted on there, or bolded, the word sorrow and pain, and new. We have to take a look at the, the beginning. Revelations is an end of the Bible, but we have to realize all the stuff that got us there. It is an end cap. So let's go to the other end of the Bible and see how these definitions of this promise come to be. So let's take a look at Genesis 3.16. It's actually the beginning of sorrows. And it says, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow, and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and the desire shall be for the husband. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. So I had to take a look and see what are these Hebrew words and Greek words, making sure that within this promise that I was given, my understanding was true. So the Hebrew word for sorrow, and I'm not a great linguist or anything like that, um, is ashtab. And the definition that it gave me was it 
points to words like worry, pain, anger, to grieve, to be displeased, to hurt, or to be sorry. So if we then take a look back at sorrow in the Greek language in Revelations, I wanted to compare and make sure we were using the same definition. And it looks like it was true. The Greek word for sorrow is pasheo. Definition there was mourning, suffer, sensation of impression or pain, something very painful. Another important word. So before I go there, um, sorrow. So what I was trying to point out that sorrow in the beginning is the definition of sorrow at the end. He wanted to remind us that what we went through in life is what he's promising to get rid of. That we are, if we didn't have the definition or the life that we live through, we would not know what he was talking about. If he started at the beginning and said, oh, I'm going to give you none of this, we wouldn't know. So let's go and look in pain and see what that part in this promise is about. And it says in another important word, oh, well, I said it was pain. Revelations 21.4, pain is translated from the Greek word panos, which is toil, anguish, labor, and labor that demands great exertion. So our normal daily jobs for most of us, in one form or another. Um, so it would be a mental exertion or physical exertion. Uh, so we totally understand that one. So I wanted to go back to an old-time definition or a beginning-of-the-Bible definition, and that made me think of Job. Job went through that stuff to its utmost. Um, the, when I started looking down through the words used in Job, I couldn't go to the first one um, of pain because he d- dealt with many forms of pain while he was going through that trial. The one that it gave me, um, it was represented in Job 33.19. In Job 33.19, it reads, He is chastened also with pain upon his bed, and the multitude of bones with strong pain. So, I know it's an odd text to take out, but the type of pain, he's already been through all of his mental loss, um, all the family members destroyed, cattle, all that, that's already been done. He's already to a point where he's breaking down emotionally and physically. He's not understanding what's going on. His body's breaking down on him. He's stuck to a bed. And the pain has gotten him worked or overexerted. Um, his pain in his bones, they're strong. They, he can't fathom having to fight past them to do his next task. This is the pain that represents the pain in the end where we just say we want to give up. Okay? So uh, one word I said I have one I have one last word. So okay, looks like I'm trying to get ahead of myself. But um, so pain. That that pain, like I said, was a pain that we want to get rid of. So he's getting rid of the sorrow what we don't want to deal with. He's getting rid of the pain that we don't want to feel any longer. 
and now we need to look at what his definition of new is. So what context is, the, uh, is new? In Revelations 21.5, the Greek word is used as kineos. Okay, and kineos in Greek was defined in a couple different ways. Um, as in freshness, um, unaccustomed or used. So with that definition, it's going to be something new, something we're not used to, something never been seen before, never used. It's, it's also new as, new as in quality. It's unworn, never seen, never touched, never used. But it does not explain time. That word does not have anything to do with time. Time is not a part of it. It's not new in time. It could have been there from the beginning, but it is a fresh, new idea and custom to us. God's will to change what will change the condition of his creation. No destruction is referenced in the word new. Obviously, he is talking about those who have chosen him, Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He doesn't promise that to everyone. This promise isn't for everyone. It's only those who accepted him as Lord and Savior of their life. So I wanted to take a look back, since we got some of the definitions of these important words figured out, and we look back at Revelations. Um, let me see if I can go back to the verses. Too far. Oh, come on. Oh, way too far. Sorry about this. And again, so if we read the verses in Revelations 21 with these new ideas of what these words mean, it says, And God shall wipe away all the tears from our eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, so we will not have any form of sadness because he is with us. There will be no more crying. We will have, um, there should be no more pain, no feel of exertion, no feel of our bodies can't do it any longer. We'll be able to do what he had planned for us in the beginning. And the former things will pass away, we'll and everything will be made new. So if I go all the way back to the end here, sorry about this. <laughs> uh, he will give to we will get to live a forever life with the creator in our presence without any sorrow without any pain we will get to live life the way he tended in the first place being that it happened in the garden of eden where we ha gain, gain the first sorrows and the first pain we will actually get to live the way he intended with none of that. But the reason why this promise comes in the end is because we need to have a reference point in the beginning to understand what he gave us. If we were, if we were, were lucky enough, I guess I wouldn't even say it was lucky, but if we were lucky enough that Adam and Eve didn't eat the apple, we would not know what we have, what he gave us. But because we live this life of pain, suffering, sorrow, 
we now all will see the beauty in being in the presence of God again. It'll have value. We will see the, the power and the gift of our spiritual, soulful, soulful self being in a body created by the living God. It is a gift. We will also understand how we are somewhat like the creator himself in his image. But all this, if we were just left in the Garden of Eden, not eating that apple, we would have no reference. We'd be like, how you doing today, God? Another day. What can I do for you? No. I'd rather be, have lived this life with sorrow and pain and have a reference point for what he intended and why he intended it and how much love he had on his intention than to live a life without that experience. And I want you guys to just remember that. And that's it. So, Josh asked me to do one prayer um, before we go on to the next section. So, if you'd like to go to prayer with me. God, I just want to thank you for um, bringing the word to all three of us, uh, Josh and David and myself. Um, hopefully, it blends together nicely in the minds of your people that the Holy Spirit could touch their lives with it and um, help them to understand what great promise you have for us at the end. Um, please be with us uh, this week and also through the rest of our lives so that we understand this pain and sorrow is for our knowledge, our experience, our understanding of your true love in its greatest form, be it that if we get this, get touched by you at one moment listening to music like Josh said, or be it a friend next to us that uh, gives a shoulder to cry on or some great words um, to help us along the way. Just be with us as we go so that we can uh, do your will and be ready for when death's horse com comes down and takes us up to you so we can then enjoy your presence and understand what you have planned for us in the new kingdom to come. In your son's name, amen.